Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were coming out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winning, winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You can be seated as we pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would allow what is here in this passage to be heard by us, to open our ears, open our eyes, and work good in our hearts and lives through it. In Jesus' name, amen. My kids often ask me to tell a story. Dad, tell a story. Sometimes I'll tell a story from my childhood. Sometimes I'll tell a made-up story. Now, on occasion, those stories are nothing but silliness. So I'm just trying to make it a fun story. But oftentimes, I'll take that silly story and I'll try to uh, instruct them or, or instill some good thing, some good value to them as, as I tell the story. So more than just a silly story, it becomes an expose of the perils of self-centered living or something like that. To them, it's just a silly story, but if they were listening closely, they might have picked up on it. As we've been traveling through the book of Matthew, uh, we've kind of finished the first major section. The first two chapters talk about the origins of Jesus, right? And at face value, is just telling some basic stories. But what we've noticed is that Matthew's actually 
giving us some insights into who Jesus is. He's telling us a little bit more in these stories, kind of like the stories I tell my kids. So we noticed when we went through that genealogy at the, at the outset, it, it wasn't just listing all the ancestors of Jesus. He was actually linking Jesus and saying how he is the capstone, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And we also saw in that genealogy how God's heart from the very beginning has been those who are, are on the fringe, those who have the most need, and that Christ's coming was to them. And then when we looked at the birth of Jesus, we saw how this Jesus came to deal with our sin, to save us from our sin, and that he is Yahweh, God Almighty, with us. When we looked at the wise men in the, in the second part of, or in the first part of chapter 2, we saw God's heart for all peoples. He'd invite wise men from the east to his birth. And then we saw at the end of chapter 2, Jesus' flight, you know, he was getting away from Herod. We saw that Jesus came into our suffering to deliver us from our suffering. So you get a sense for what Matthew does. He tells the story, but there's more going on. We're about to begin the next kind of section of Matthew, Jesus' preparation for ministry. And, and it's just two basic stories, the story of John the Baptist and the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. But again, Matthew has an agenda, a spirit-given agenda for us. Matthew wants our hearts to be captured and shaped by who Jesus is. So as we dig into chapter 3, this, this great story of John the Baptist, we also want to have our antenna up for what is, what is Matthew, what is the Holy Spirit through Matthew trying to teach us about who Jesus is? Well, the story begins with this odd-looking man, you know, garment of camel's hair, leather belt, eating locusts and honey, standing out in the wilderness by the Jordan River and proclaiming a message. And, and it seems that, that the masses are coming to him. You might have noticed it there in verse 5. Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region of the Jordan were coming out to him. Why are all these people flock, flocking to this odd guy who's walking around in the wilderness proclaiming a message. Well, he looks the part of a prophet. He speaks the words of a prophet. And remember that for Israel, they had had prophet after prophet after prophet speaking to them until about 400 years before the coming of Christ. And then prophecies ceased. And so there had been this hunger for the word of God. And now all of a sudden one comes, anointed by the Spirit, speaking forth the message that God had ordained for him to speak. And Jerusalem, all Judea, all the region of the Jordan are coming out to him, hearing this news. But Matthew does something in verse 3. He says, this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He points back to the Old Testament. Now, if you've been following in our series, 
and you've been going through Matthew, you realize this is something Matthew does a lot. He does this a lot for us. He, doesn't, he says there's a story going on, but if you really want to understand it, you've got to go back to the Old Testament. I've talked about my sister Ruth a few times here. Uh, she's a teacher in the Chicago Public Schools, or she was a teacher. Now she trains teachers in the Chicago Public Schools. And her expertise is mathematics. So she was a middle school math teacher. Some of us would think that's the worst job imaginable. But she was a middle school math teacher. And, and her analysis was that the kids that she would get in her, in her classes, the weakness of, of the school system there was that they had taught kids, like, let's take fractions as an example. They taught them kind of the, the rules for how to multiply and get the right answer. But they had no connection between what they were doing and multiplying the number on top and the number on the bottom to get two new numbers with what, what that actually corresponded to because they'd never been taught the concept of fractions. So, so they had no idea what, what that was corresponding to or, or how to kind of intuitively check their work. And so before she would teach them more about fractions, she'd always take a step back, say there's actually something more you need to know. You need to understand the concepts behind this. And th that's what Matthew's going to do over and over for us in his gospel. He's going to say, hey, I don't want you just working out here with the numbers. I want you to take a step back into the Old Testament and see what's really going on here. Really understand conceptually what's happening in the life of Jesus right now. So that now when we come in up here, you could really understand what's going on. So let's do that. Let's go back to where this quotation from verse 3 comes from in Isaiah 40, which is on page 599 if you're using the, uh, the Pew Bible. Isaiah 40 is a beautiful passage in the book of Isaiah. In it, God is, is promising that the suffering and agony of Israel is going to end at some time. That God is going to, instead of the pain, he's going to bring this healing to them. And so he says in verses 1 and 2, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. That her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. And look down at verse 9. Go on up to the high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Why is there going to be a time of comfort? Why is there a time of healing coming? Because God is going to arrive on the scene. Not just some concept of, of returning to thinking about God, not just some prophet, but God himself is going to be coming in as the king riding in to Jerusalem to restore his city to comfort his people to bring an end to the suffering. That's what Isaiah 40 is telling us. Now, in order for this king to come in, as would often be the case, when, when the, the king that you were looking forward to coming comes, you would send out workers who would come and, and make his way as flat and straight as possible. So you'd 
you know, if it was a real high hill, you'd try and flatten as much as possible. A, a deep valley had to go through. Maybe you build a bridge over it, whatever. You're trying to make his way straight for it. And that's exactly what the prophet Isaiah says is going to happen because God is coming. The king is coming into his kingdom. Bring comfort. This is good news. What's going to happen? Verse 3 to 5. Look at that. Look at them with me. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. So, prophet Isaiah says there will come a time when God will come and bring in his kingdom. Yahweh himself will be marching in. And in anticipation of that, what we need to have happen or what will happen is there will be a voice that cries and and, and helps prepare the way through the wilderness for our God to come in. That's the concept behind. Now let's bring it back up here again to Matthew. Jesus, or Matthew says that John the Baptist was that one in the wilderness preparing the way. But he says it with a surprising twist. Now from what Isaiah said, you would have expected, so to speak, John to be wearing a hard hat and carrying a jackhammer. His, his job is there's a king coming in and he needs to pave the way for this king to come in. But instead, he's wearing prophet's gear. He matches Isaiah with his garment of camel skin and his belt of leather. He's eating strange things, showing us, it's not a jackhammer in his hand, it's a locust and honey sandwich in his hand saying, look, this man's different, he's doing something different here. And he has a message. The kingdom of God is at hand, he says. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Do you see what Matthew is telling us about Jesus and God's kingdom and how Isaiah 40 is being fulfilled? We didn't need land movers to come in and prepare the way for Jesus. We needed heart movers to come in and prepare the way for Jesus. Because Jesus is not, in the first place, a castle toppler. He is, in the first place, a sin toppler. God will eventually, when Jesus returns, bring in a physical kingdom to this earth and eventually establish that as an eternal kingdom wherein there's all righteousness. So there is a physicality, there is a castle toppling nature to his kingdom. But the whole need for that physical castle toppling kingdom is all because of man's rebellion. Back in the garden, Adam and Eve. Adam disobeys God and takes the fruit and eats. 
And that's, that's why all the brokenness, all the agony, all the heartache, all the sinfulness is, is prevalent in this world, the reign of darkness, right? And so if God's kingdom is going to come in, he's going to come in as a kingdom that first and foremost deals with sin. And so the messenger of Isaiah 40, who's preparing the way for the Lord, making it straight, is not a construction worker. He's a prophet calling on the people to repent. And if God's kingdom is a kingdom that is prime, or first and foremost dealing with sin, then it's no mistake that the first word of John the Baptist's proclamation is, Repent. In fact, when Mark tells us the gospel Jesus proclaimed, the first word he reports Jesus saying is, Repent. And when you read through the book of Acts, and you hear over and over again the apostles proclaiming the gospel, the word you hear over and over again is, Repent. Maybe not a word we hear as often today, but it's an important word. In the Old Testament, the word for repent just meant you're going one direction, you turn and go the other direction. You could just means turn. In the New Testament, the word for repent means kind of a new way of thinking, something more internal. There's a physicality to the Old Testament word. There's an internal sense to the New Testament word. But together, there's this concept of repentance that's saying, look, Instead of loving your sin and following your flesh, turn from that and follow Christ. If you want an image for repentance, all of us by nature are hugging or embracing our sin and self-rule. Repentance is letting go of that embrace and turning to Christ, our Savior, and gripping on, holding on, embracing Him. That is biblical repentance. And that is the call that John the Baptist gave. You see, If you love your sin and you don't want to give it up, Jesus' kingdom isn't for you. Or it won't be for you. The person who's dying from cancer does not love their cancer. Continue to embrace it. They wage war. Biblical repentance is saying, I'm not clinging to my sin anymore. It doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean that you walk without any fault after that. It's a matter of your heart and mind posture. What are you gripping onto? What are you clinging to? What are you allowing to govern your life? What is shaping you? Is it sin and self-rule? Or is it Christ, the forgiveness he brings, the kingdom of God? So, because John is dealing with sin to prepare the way for the Lord, his call is repent. 
and people were coming, according to verse 6, confessing their sins. But there's something else they were doing, too. They were being baptized. John will even talk about in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. Why? I mean, what's the idea of going down into the waters of the Jordan River and coming up? What's going on with that? And there's different explanations that are out there, some more compelling than others. But the key here with the baptism of John is that there was an outward manifestation of the repentance that was going on. So repentance ultimately is a matter of your heart, right? So you could, you know, whatever advice you want to have, you could figure out a way to stop doing that and not necessarily be repenting. Because repenting is a matter of what you're embracing, what you're clinging to, right? So it's a matter of the heart. So John the Baptist has this outward way of expressing that inward reality of the heart that says, look, I, I am committed to this repentance and turning from my sin and walking, clinging to this coming kingdom that you're announcing, John. Well, how does Matthew end his gospel? The verses that we've encouraged the church to memorize as a theme for the whole book of Matthew this great commission to make disciples of all nations. And how does he describe that point of conversion? That point where somebody repents and turns. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the apostles, when they proclaim repent, We might say if repentance is the first word of the gospel, the second word is be baptized. Now, not all who have been baptized have genuinely repented. But biblically speaking, anyone who has genuinely repented will be baptized. That's the the expectation in Scripture. It's like a girl telling, telling a guy, yeah, I'll be your girlfriend. I just never want to be seen with you. Or, or a husband telling his wife, I love you deeply. I'm committed to you. I'm willing to sacrifice for you. But whenever we're out in public, let's act like we're not married. It just doesn't add up, right? So to say, I have repented. I've let go of of clinging to my sin and myself, and I've embraced Christ, but I'm not going to get baptized, is nonsensical, biblically speaking. It is that outward sign of the work that God has done done in us. When you think about these first six verses, John the Baptist coming to deal with sin, one of the questions that we need to ask is, Have we repented? Have I really let go and clung to Christ? And if you haven't, now's the time. God's speaking to you to repent. If you have repented, if you have let go of slavery to sin and yourself and embraced the freedom of following and serving Christ, but haven't been baptized, 
now is the time. I didn't choose this text on the Sunday that Terry was going to say we have a baptism class and have Mark stand up. I didn't even know he was going to do that. But here we have it in God's providence. If you repented and not been baptized, I won't make him stand up again. The story continues. So John is baptizing in the water, right? People are flocking to him. And then all of a sudden, there's this abrupt interruption. Because there's a group of people there standing who want to be baptized, who, who want to follow. And they happen to be the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the religious who's who of the Jewish people. With all their righteousness and all their ornate piety, standing before this man in a garment of camel skin saying, we're ready to be baptized. And John the Baptist, as the prophets often did, does something totally unexpectedly. And he calls these men a brood of vipers, offsprings of snakes. Oops. Oops, John, you really blew that one. Talk about a cultural faux pas. Don't you know that this religious group happens to link snakes with Satan? And you're calling their religious leaders? You could have chosen a better analogy, my friend. No. John has it exactly as he means it. And he knows what he's doing. And Matthew, look how many verses he spends on this exchange with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 7 all the way to verse 12. This is something Matthew wants to highlight and bring our attention to. What's going on? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, he asks. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, he says. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to raise up from stones children for Abraham. If you're not bearing good fruit, the axe is at the root. What's going on with these Pharisees, these Sadducees? Well, the group has come out. All, all of Israel's flowing to these people. This is where the religious activity is. So sure, I'll come out. I'll go along with this. Show what a great guy I am. I'm also standing with a new prophet on the scene. But there's something going on in the Pharisees' hearts that you see here with those words that John says to them. And then as the gospel unfolds, you'll see more and more the heart of the Pharisees and Sadducees becoming clear. They are people who feel they have no need for a savior. Sure, they might want a political savior of some sort. But in terms of their own hearts and the wickedness of their own hearts, well, I've got my heart under control. I'm a moral person. I'm, I'm basically good. In fact, I'm, I'm kind of looked to in the community as the good one, right? I don't need repentance. I've got, I've got it all together. Maybe even I do need repentance and I've already done that. I'm so good. After all, 
We stand in God's favor, don't we, as children of Abraham? And John says, that heart, that heart is actually the opposite of the heart we need to have before God. He says, the axe is going to come and cut that down. And he says, and if you think my words are strong, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because there's one coming. The one coming is so great, I, I couldn't even be a servant and not say it. And when he comes, he's going to have a winnowing fork. And there is an unquenchable fire awaiting those awaiting those who have not repented, who have not borne fruit in keeping with repentance. In a sense, brood of vipers be damned, he says. We go to church Does it make us proud? More sure of ourselves? Does it entrench our sense of superiority? Does it make us inclined to put a cloak over our sin, to hide it, or even make ourselves blind to it? Instead of Instead of making us humble, instead of making us more and more aware of our own weakness, instead of making us see our sinfulness more clearly, instead of making us rely more on Christ, if that's who we are, We're in the place of the Pharisees. Yeah. If the Pharisee says, we have Abraham as a father, we might say, I prayed a prayer. I was baptized. They were coming to be baptized. I call myself a Christian. Even now, the axe is at the root. His winnowing fork is in his hand and there is an unquenchable fire. I don't... If I were to choose the messages I talked about, this isn't one of the ones that's fun for me to talk about. But God in his word is saying something to us. He's warning us. He's warning me warning you it's true as I said if you're willing to let go of your sin and your self rule and embrace Christ there's forgiveness there's cleansing comfort ye comfort ye my people saith the Lord 
those who cling to their sin, be warned. And particularly here, those who in their own minds, and maybe even in the eyes of others, have let go of sin, they have good control of it in their own minds, and yet are still like this. Brood of vipers. Do we hear God's warning this morning? Let's stop and examine our hearts. What, if we've been a Christian for some time, what has it done to us? Has it made us more and more humble and meek and aware of our sin and aware of our brokenness and, and knowing we come to this table here beggars? Or has it puffed us up, made us more confident in, in how righteous we are how well we can control our own impulses and made us more reliant on ourselves than God. As I read and study this, I don't want any of us, myself included, to leave this morning an offspring of Satan thinking that we're righteous. God has given us this warning. May we hear it. So that's John's exchange with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Kind of typical prophet stuff, right? They never said what you expected. They were always willing to speak the truth and take on whoever. And then, for the first time in Matthew's gospel, Jesus comes on the scene. Yes, he was there before as a little baby. But I mean as an adult prepared for ministry, here he comes on the scene. In fact, there's a sense in this opening words, then Jesus came. It's like Jesus arrived. He appeared. He made his appearance. It's the sense there. Here he is. But it's really weird. Because John is out there saying, people, repent of your sins. I'm preparing the way for somebody, so you need to deal with your sins. And then this guy shows up who is Jesus, the one he's preparing the way for, who has no sin, and he comes to be baptized. I heard one preacher talk about it like uh, you're having a, a revival meeting and then you call the people forward who are the sinners to come and, you know, uh, come forward and kneel and do business with God. And, and he's walking down the aisle right there. One who has never sinned in his life. This is weird. And so John thinks it's weird. He says, no, 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 no. This is not how it should be. But Jesus says, verse 15, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What's that mean? Jesus is identifying with the people that he has come to save. And what, righteous, what a righteous Israelite would have done, coming to John the Baptist and being baptized in that water, he is joining with them in doing. It'd be like, uh, this is my teacher analogy day, so I got another teacher analogy. It'd be like a teacher who's, you know, 
the best teacher in the school by a long side, the best teacher in the district. And there's a seminar being offered that the teachers are encouraged to go to to improve their skills as a teacher. And uh, everybody knows this teacher should be teaching the seminar. They have no need for the seminar. But the teacher goes to the seminar anyways. Because that's what a good teacher would do. And this teacher is going to do what a good teacher would do. Even if it isn't necessarily going to benefit them per se. By being baptized with John's baptism, Jesus was showing his unity with the humanity that he came to save. And as soon as he demonstrates that unity with the humanity he came to save, he comes up out of the waters, the sky is split open, the Holy Spirit appears like a dove and comes down and rests upon him. God the Father speaks and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He is commended by the Spirit and the Father in the sight of man. A picture of his unity with the deity that he is. Do you see that here in, in, these, in this baptism? His unity with humanity that he's saving and his unity with the deity whom he is. J.C. Ryle said, it was the whole trinity which at the beginning of creation said, let us make man. It was the whole trinity again which at the beginning of the gospel seemed to say, let us save man. What Jesus was about to do was not his own initiative alone, but the whole triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit together. And what Jesus was about to embark on these three years was the will of God. He was sent by the Father to do this, but it was going to be difficult ministry. And to have the commendation of the Father and the the clear presence of the Spirit with him would carry him through not only the wilderness temptation which immediately follow, but all of his ministry. If we are going to embark on any kind of ministry in Christ's name, must we, ought we also be dependent on the Father and his commendation and the Spirit whom he gives us? If Jesus needed that at the start of his ministry, how much more do we? The Father says of Jesus, this is my beloved Son, Son of God. Matthew's Gospel begins that way, right? With the Father saying, this is my beloved Son. It ends with a centurion, a Gentile, saying of the crucified Christ, surely this man was the son of God. In between, right after this, Jesus goes into the wilderness and Satan tempts him, if you are the son of God, that's what's in question. When, When Peter makes his grand confession, you are the Christ, he says, you are the Christ, the son of God. Again on the mountain when the transfiguration happens. The father again speaks. Says this is my beloved son. 
And he adds this word, listen to him. And then when the high priest is trying to get Jesus crucified, his main charge against him is he claims to be the son of God. If you don't realize what's going on with that title and the weight Matthew gives to it, that this is not just some vain title that could be attached to any Israelite because in a sense all Israel is God's son. No, this is something that is claiming him in a unique position as Savior, as God. So here we have the God-man, the start of his ministry, at the outset of his ministry, in preparation for ministry. And he's unified with humanity whom he comes to save. And he shows his unity with the Trinity. At the end of Jesus' ministry, He hangs on a cross between two sinners. One of those sinners is repentant. And he says to that sinner whom he's with in his death, today you'll be with me in paradise. At the outset of Jesus' ministry, He's down in the waters of the Jordan River with sinners. One group is penitent, following John, confessing their sins, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Another group, the Pharisees and Sadducees, are sinners but are not repentant. John says to the Pharisees, even now the axe is laid to the tree. Here we are, a picture of Christ in our midst, amongst sinners. You know who this body is? This blood of the new covenant is for. It's not enough to say it's for sinners. It's for penitent sinners. It's for those who have let go of their embrace of sin and self-rule and have embraced Christ. Matthew wants us to see not just John the Baptist and by the way he fulfills the prophecy he wants us to see the heart of Christ the nature of his kingdom and that he is here for any sinner who will repent and embrace him let us pray Father, I do not want to be one of those who eternally is in the anguish of unquenching fire. Nor do I want anyone here to be in that situation. So I ask, 
and your grace that you would open our eyes that we might be truly humble and broken people clinging to Jesus, not to our own righteousness or not to our sin. That can only happen as your spirit works in hearts